Amen. That's indeed a glorious truth, which I trust we'll see um, contained in this verse that we're going to be considering tonight. Uh, This evening, we continue our series titled, Rightly Handling the Word of Truth. That's a phrase taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2.15, where Paul tells us to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth there's no need to be ashamed if we have the scriptures and we know how to interpret them in a way that encourages us for the christian walk but one of the problems with not the bible but with the dissemination of the bible with the bible being so popular is that the bible is likely to be mishandled incorrectly handled misused for intentions other than that of the divine author, taken out of context, verses plucked from their original salvific historical context and used sometimes for our own selfish purposes. Texts are sometimes misapplied in either legalistic or licentious ways, that is, either binding people's consciences in ways that the Bible doesn't teach or allowing people free reign where they ought to be convicted. As the saying goes, a text without a context becomes a pretext for whatever we want it to say. Pretext meaning a bad reason for doing something. A text without a context becomes a pretext for whatever we want it to say. So let's turn now to Isaiah 41 verse 10, if you're not already there. As we humbly trust God to reveal to us his intention for this passage, and through this passage, his intention for us. Isaiah 41 verse 10. And we'll first consider the context so that this text doesn't become a pretext for whatever we wanted to say. We'll first consider the context to see where Isaiah is coming from and where he is going. And then we'll ask two very simple questions of interpretation, questions that we should all be asking as we approach the scriptures. Who is this God that is helping us? Who is this God that's helping us? And how is he helping us? How does he relate to us? And as we do this, considering the context and asking these questions, we'll learn that Isaiah 41 verse 10 is teaching us something very moving and special about God, that God is with us. God is with us. So let's first consider the context very briefly. Okay? The book of Isaiah is only 66 chapters long. 66 long chapters, 66 chapters of poetic Old Testament prophecy. Okay? The book of Isaiah is very long, and anyone who reads any portion of it is likely to feel a little bit lost, like one is in the fabled Fangorn Forest of the Lord of the Rings. But it contains a threefold division or structure, which I think will help us see where 41 verse 10 fits in. Chapters 1 to 39, so the first section of the book, they are spoken to Israel and the surrounding nations during the time of Isaiah's ministry. So while Isaiah is alive, he is alive during the reign of certain kings of Judah. And these first 39 chapters are written to Israel, to Jerusalem during that time. They contain words of judgment upon Israel and judgment upon Assyria and Babylon And you see, Isaiah, he lived during a time in Israel's history that was fraught with sinfulness, covenant-breaking. He lived during a time when Israel and Judah were spiraling out of control. Okay, The breaks had failed. They were disregarding God's law and thereby incurring the covenantal curses that God had promised to bring upon his wayward children. Listen to some of the opening words of the book in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Listen to these words. This is how Isaiah opens up. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. How about that for an introduction to the book of Isaiah? That's where Israel currently is. That's the message of chapters 1 to 39, a message of impending destruction, a message of impending doom, a message of impending exile. God is coming to bring his people into exile for their sin. So that's what happens during the reign of Isaiah's ministry. But then chapters 40 to 55, the middle section of the book, that takes a noticeable, very encouraging turn. They're speaking comfort to God's people during the time of exile. So now this is a prophecy for what is going to happen after Isaiah's time. The section, chapter 40, verses 1 to 2, opens with these two verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's quite the contrast from what we, what we read in chapter 1, right? Comfort, comfort my people. So while Israel is rightly in exile because of their sin, their covenant breaking, God has nonetheless remembered his people. He's nonetheless been faithful to the covenant, and he has a plan to fulfill for his people and through his people to the nations, as we'll see in Jeremiah 29, 11, a very similar kind of text. So that's the middle section of Isaiah. And then the last, the third section of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, they're also addressing people in exile, but they're dealing with words about the future hope of the new creation. When God's kingdom is ushered in and inaugurated, what does it actually look like to live within that kingdom? That's what the final section of Isaiah is all about. So that's the book of Isaiah in a nutshell. Okay, we're really trying to condense a lot over here so we can really understand where 41 verse 10 fits in. So let's read verses 8 to 10 of Isaiah 41 to make sure we're seeing this for ourselves. Isaiah 41 verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel... My servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You might say, I will hold you fast. That's what God is saying. So who is clearly being addressed in these verses? It's very obvious. Israel, God's servant, his friend, the offspring of Abraham. That's abundantly clear in the text. But if this is a message to Israel during the time of their exile, what do we have to do with it? How can we responsibly apply this passage to ourselves And that's where these two questions come in. These two questions that we should be asking of any text, but especially this text. And those questions are this. Who is the God that Isaiah is speaking of? What is the nature and character of the God who is going to be helping Israel? 
And then secondly, how is he actually helping his people? Answering those questions will allow us to see something about God that is true in all time. And seeing the way that he relates to Israel through Jesus will help us see how it becomes relevant and applicable to us. So first of all, who is this God? Well, Isaiah has a lot to say about who God is. But the first thing that he makes incredibly clear is that God is not an idol. God is the very opposite of an idol. He is not mute like the idols. In other words, he's not fashioned by human hands. He is not a mere invention of the faculty of religious studies at university. He is not the imagination of blind zealots. He is the God who he is. He is our say, the only self-existent eternal creator of the universe. That's who God is. And that's what Isaiah makes clear. Look at how Isaiah expresses it in just the previous chapter, the immediate context, chapter 40, verse 18, says this. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? (laughs) Rhetorical question, of course not. Why would you compare God to an idol? Why cling to idols? Isaiah is asking us the same question we're now asking. Who is this God? To whom will you compare God? An idol? No ways. I like the way that the New English translation phrases chapter 40, verses 25 and 26. To whom can you compare me? Whom do I resemble, says the Holy One? God does not resemble anyone. If anything, creation and us, those who are created by him, resemble him only in a fraction of the way. Look up at the sky. Who created all these heavenly lights? He is the one who leads out their ranks. He calls them all by name because of his absolute power and awesome strength. Not one of them is missing. That's the way Isaiah describes the character of God in contrast to the idols. God is not only different from an idol, but there is nothing and no one in creation quite like this God. That's the way God is described in contrast to idols. That's the first thing Isaiah wants to make incredibly clear about who this God is. But the second thing is that this God is a mighty shepherd. That's the next point that we see throughout these chapters in Isaiah. We need to look no further than, again, the immediate context to find this glorious image. Take a look at chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. Chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Yes, the Lord is mighty. He is powerful. He is the potentate. He is the king of the universe. But he's not aloof. He relates to his people. Yes, he is righteous, but he is also merciful. He is also gentle and lowly. He is high and lifted up, but he is also concerned with the humble. So who is this God? Well, he's not an idol. He is a mighty shepherd. But then finally, and hopefully we'll see that this is plainly the implication of this text, this God whom Isaiah is describing, whether Isaiah fully realized it or not, is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. That is the God who is being described here. 
Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Again, we're not going everywhere else in Isaiah. We're just going to the previous chapter, Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, it's very clear that this text is speaking about Yahweh, the one true covenantal God of Israel. And yet, verse 3, that's in Mark chapter 1, describing whom? John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then Jesus comes into Galilee, declaring the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah. He is the God of Israel embodied to do for Israel what God is promising to do here. So just just a quick question of application here before we move on to the second question about how God helps us. What are we referring to when we refer to God? Who are we referring to when we refer to God? When we use that term God, who are we referring to? It might sound like a mind-numbingly obvious question. But the issue with overusing the generic term God is that we often assume everyone means the same thing when we use that term. In Israel's day, there were many Elohim, there were many gods who were called upon, Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, and others. But although they were designated with the same word, Elohim, they were vastly different from the one true God, the God of Israel revealed in Jesus. I think especially in our own day, a day that is apparently so secularized, actually it's, more, it's just another version of paganism. There are almost more gods worshipped today than before the Enlightenment. In our own day, um, the universe is God, Mother Nature is God, or the spirit that lives in each of us. I had this very interesting conversation with a man who believed once that he was God. I'm sure all the questions are coming to your mind as to how does that really play out? But you see the confusion we live in in our own day at just the use or the designation of that term, God. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the word God, right? But we need to make sure that we understand what this word means in its biblical context. And this isn't just about being technical. It's about growing in our relationship with the true God by getting to know him on his own terms, in his own language. Otherwise, imagine we strip out this verse without its context, using the word God, without actually defining our terms correctly. Imagine pulling out all the Bible verses that use the term God, but never actually saying, how does this God reveal himself? What is the character of this God? What are his actual attributes? What is true about God? And one of the dangers of proof texting, of course, is that we start to construct our own theology around these little snippets of texts without actually seeing what the Bible says holistically. I mean, in conflict resolution, something I'm sure none of us ever have to go through, um, a piece of advice we're often told is that um, you should be able to express the viewpoint of the person you're disagreeing with in a way that they would agree with. You should be able to express the viewpoint of the person you're disagreeing with in a way that they agree with, in his own terms, in their own language. Now, when it comes to speaking about God, do we speak about him in terms that he would agree with, so to speak? Do we speak about God in the way that he speaks about himself? Do we use God's definition of himself? 
While doing some research for this text, I came across this um, devotional on the website of the Christ Embassy Church. Christ Embassy is a prosperity gospel word of faith church that is big in South Africa. You, you might see some billboards about Pastor Chris all over the place. And he had this devotional on, on Isaiah 41 verse 10. And listen to these words. He says, it makes no difference what the situation is. Be conscious that you can, uh, be conscious that you can neither fail nor lose. You're attended by the presence of God. You're attended by the presence of God. Attended. Isn't that the language we use to describe the way that slaves attend to their masters? Now, sure, I mean, perhaps we could be more gracious in our interpretation and say that the word attend simply means to be with someone, and that's what Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, that God is with us. But is it true that we can neither fail nor lose? Whose purposes are being achieved in that kind of, in that kind of teaching? God may be the one with all the power, the powerful friend who can do whatever, but we're in charge, and he's got to get behind our purposes. He's got to attend to us. That's not the sense of this passage. The emphasis of this passage, as with any passage of Scripture, is first and foremost on the character of God. If we get that wrong, then whatever application we make to our own lives will be misapplied. Only once we see his character more truly and more deeply can we then find true encouragement in how he helps his people. If we have a view of God that is like a genie, then we will feel let down when this genie doesn't do what we want him to do. When we have a view of God where he's like an ATM, then we'll feel let down when this ATM runs out of cash. So if we really know God as revealed in the scriptures, as revealed in the context of this passage, it'll deepen the reality expressed by this verse. That it is this God who is with us. Not just God defined on our terms, but this great, glorious king of the universe. The one who judges justly. The one who cannot be compared to idols. The one who is a loving, merciful, mighty shepherd. And the one revealed to us in Jesus. This is the God who has promised to help us and to be with us. And already there, there's an enormous encouragement in this verse just by understanding who God is. But how is he helping his people? How does he actually relate to Israel? How does he relate to us? According to this verse and its context, what kind of help did Israel expect? And what kind of help should we expect to rightly apply this verse? After all, Isaiah 41 verse 10, as beautiful as it is on its own, doesn't actually give us that much detail. It doesn't really flesh out for us what God is going to do to help us. It says that God is with us, okay, so he is near, he is present, he is imminent. It says that he is our God, meaning he has a unique relationship to us. It says he will strengthen us and help us and uphold us. But all these things only get their meaning from their context. All these things only get their meaning from their context. If I told someone that I am moving house soon, and they responded by saying, I will help you, then it's fair if I assume they mean they will help me move, if that's the context. Uh, or if I told someone that I'm struggling to keep my pool clean through summer, and they responded by saying, I'll be there for you, it's safe for me to assume that they mean that they'll come twice a week at about 8 or 8.30, that's fine, just WhatsApp me, and they'll do a backwash and skim the pool. I can assume that from the context. Okay, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So we have to look at the context to understand how God is going to be helping his people. 
And the answer to the second question of how God is going to answer his people is actually bound together with the answer to our first question. The kind of help that God gives to his people is in accordance with the kind of God that he is. That's really, really important. It's because he is not an idol, but is rather the creator that he can bring into existence things that are not. He can create new realities. He can create new life. He can move the hearts of kings and rulers and magistrates and ministers only if he is not an idol. And it's because he is a mighty shepherd that he can comfort us and we can be assured of his concern for us. So that's the first thing that we can say, that the kind of help he gives us is bound up in the kind of God that he is. But according to what follows in Isaiah, according to the immediate context, the specific help he gives is in dealing with, in, with Israel's enemies. Dealing with Israel's enemies. The enemies whom God used to bring about judgment upon Israel for their sin. That's really important. Not just any of Israel's opponents, not just anyone who opposes us, but in the context, the enemies of Israel that God has brought about as a consequence for their sin. In other words, God is bringing an end to his wrath. That's the way that he is helping Israel. He is lifting his wrath. And here's the point about the kind of help that God gives to us. God is coming to not merely deal with the consequences of our sin, but he has come to deal with the root cause of our sin, our hearts. That's the help that God is giving. He will come to do justice and take upon himself the guilt and suffering we deserve, And he will create in us, by the power with which he upholds the universe, he will create in us new resurrected hearts of flesh. He will restore and redeem our relationship to him, and as a result, our relationships with others. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 43, verse 25. The Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's getting specific. That's how God is going to help Israel, by blotting out their transgressions. This is put in other words later in Isaiah 51 verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. You see that similarity of language. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I, I am he who comforts you. That comfort is in the knowledge that our relationship with God can be restored through his forgiveness of our sins And then reading a little further ahead, a very familiar passage, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, which still falls within the context of this middle section of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The God who has promised to help us has fulfilled this very promise in Jesus This isn't some airy-fairy, name-it-and-claim-it help for whatever kind of task I may need at hand, for God to serve me as though he needs to get behind my purposes. 
This is God solving my biggest need by taking it upon himself the wrath for our sin at the cross, by rising from the dead, conquering the, our greatest foe, death. Jesus now gives real meaning to Isaiah 41 verse 10, that we ought not fear, for in Jesus God is with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. You were born to save your people from their sins. We thank you, God, that you are with us in this way, that you uphold us in this way by cherishing us in the way that you cherish your son, Jesus. May, may we know of the help that you hold out for us as an expression of your character revealed in the scriptures. May we worship you as a result. May we, may we truly claim Isaiah 41 verse 10 for the deep truth that it reveals that in Christ you are with us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.